Welcome to First Day Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Kara Gannon, and I'm a public administration fellow at IPA. And I'm Troy Mix, Associate Director at the Institute. We're happy to be your hosts for this episode. Thanks for tuning in today. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Bill Provine, who is the first president and CEO of the Delaware Innovation Space, an entrepreneurial incubator developed in partnership with the state of Delaware, DuPont, and the University of Delaware. We spoke with Bill on October 8th, 2020, about the creation of the Delaware Innovation Space and their ongoing efforts to transform science-driven startups into successes. Let's get to the conversation. So, Bill, thanks so much for joining Kara and I today. We really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, definitely. We wanted to, to dive into understanding the innovation space a little more. And I guess I'm going to ask a really basic question to, to get us started, which is, what's your sense of what innovation is and why does Delaware need a space for it? Well, good, good fundamental question, um, you know, at least from the theoretical perspective, right, uh, and also commercial perspective. Clearly, the common definition is bringing an invention to market. So innovation happens as you bring technology and science to market. So, you know, that's an important feature of everything that we see, feel, and do, right, in our everyday lives and say have been more critical with, of course, the continuing challenges with climate change, pandemics, and everything in between. So, um, you know, having a space or I might say a physical place Again, I think these spaces can be virtual as well as physical, but uh, definitely with the Delaware Innovation Space, there's a definite need for physical assets and capabilities because in order to make cures for cancer and in order to make new materials, renewable energy, make it cheaper, you need laboratories, you need places to make those products, those prototypes. You know, starting early on with minimal viable products, right, testing them on the market and eventually maturing them for the final products that you'll find ultimately in the marketplace and help us all live better and healthier lives. And what's the origin story look like for the Delaware innovation space? Uh, what was the identified need and how did the response take shape? Yeah, it's an interesting story uh, I mean, by itself, so I'll try to do justice to it. And it seems like, especially with 2020, it seems like forever ago, but it was only three years ago at this point. Um, that the Delaware Innovation Space came together. And it came together conceptually, really pulling together the, the primary needs of what's needed for the greater good, right, to progress economic development and ultimately enable people to take science and bring it to the market, right, and do that through the lens of a startup company. So who was interested in something like that? Um, you know, DuPont, you know, was interested in something like that. DuPont's always looking for, you know, new business, ideas, uh, abilities to grow the company in different directions uh, in order to catalyze an environment where ideation and progression of innovation, right, is of course core to that company's being for the last several hundred years and continues to be. Uh, even with its changes and morphing over time, it's uh, still a bedrock of innovation, the bedrock of DuPont. So you had that there, and of course the physicalities of the experimental station that's just so, so powerful, I'm sure we'll return to that at some point. And then you had the University of Delaware, so this is back in 2017, 
actually, that's where the president Thomas was first starting at the University of Delaware. We actually had conversations with him when he was still up at Stony Brook, but he had been, you know, elected the next president. He was working in transition. He was down here on weekends and a few days here and there. And, you know, his passion with the University of Delaware is how do I intensify the entrepreneurial and experiential learning experience for students and, and also enable more and more students, faculty, alumni to spin out technologies from the University of Delaware and land them in new companies, right? So you have that passion there. With a new governor, you had DuPont changing with Dow DuPont and wanting to do things differently. You also had a new governor coming to be, which was John Carney. We actually started the conversations with, with, with Governor Mark Kelly and at that point, Congressperson Carney. And both of them actually had the passion and say, you know, again, some of it's a little bit of a reflection of, you know, over the years, you know, the state had a variety of different fairly large companies, fairly broadly enabling the state's economy. Um, you know, of course, the things change. I mean, they get sold, Dow DuPont merges. And at that point, Dow DuPont was merging. And, the, you know, the, definitely they were cultivating keeping, which successfully, successfully kept Corteva and DuPont headquartered in Delaware. But there was some shock treatment at that point saying, well, we thought something that those for 200 years would be here another 200 years and said, so it really was a catalyst to say, how do we even better support that next generation of DuPonts and Gores and and, and insights and companies like that. And that's what we're trying to do. And we were at that point, you know, lacking, uh, we had some capabilities at the Star Campus and at the Delaware Technology Park, but they weren't fully satisfying the needs and aspirations for the state to grow. So of course, then John Farney being a lot of the governor, you know, one of his two, two big moves early on was, was enabling us to form uh, as step number one and Close behind that, step number two was the Delaware Prosperity Partnership, right? To say, how can we re redo a little bit, you know, recraft and improve how we're doing economic development, especially around our core right to win and wins in the state. And, and one of those being, of course, science-based innovation. So it really was that perfect storm, I like to call it, of three different parties. And that's all coming together from the DuPonts, the University of Delaware's and the state saying, hey, if we're going to do this, we have to do this all together. It makes no sense for one of us to go here and one of us to go there. And all three partners simultaneously decided, yes, we're going to commit to this. And then we had to work through the governance process of each organization, right, to approve it, which ultimately happened. But I think that's, to me, the, 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 the powerful story behind it, the public-private partnership that really drives, you know, our capabilities, fuels us with the people and resources critical to the success of what we do, as well as the physicalities in terms of lab space and scientific equipment. So to me, it was capitalizing on, you know, maybe, I would never say it's not like, you know, 2020, never waste a good crisis, right? But that point is really just a reflection of, you know, take the opportunity of saying each one of the partners wanted to do something slightly differently. How do you pull us that together? And that's what we did. And that's what created uh, where, we, where I'm sitting here right now. So, yeah, there was that opportunity to address change, I guess, of Dow DuPont and the landscape more generally and thinking about how you get those catalyst companies to form and grow in Delaware. And those three parties, and I imagine there's multiple parties in each of those buckets, I guess I would say, at the industry, academic and state side, come together. What are the long-term and short-term outcomes that you're looking for? What are the goals you're looking to? have take place at the space and then catalyzed by the space? 
Yeah, I guess, you know, from a mission, from a vision perspective, in some ways the short and long-term goals are the same. We definitely have different objectives in the short, medium, and long-term as we build out our offering. But ultimately, you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to catalyze the formation and growth of investable startup companies, ones that are scalable, ones that can live for generations in our community, and ones that take that right to win the Delaware, which is the sciences, and turn that into, well, again, translate that from science to laboratory to a product in the marketplace and enabling the steps along the way to get help someone to get there. So getting back to the short-term objectives, you know, that becomes, you know, in terms of how we build up towards the full capability we're trying to accomplish. You know, we've definitely started as a physical incubator, you know, place for people to come, the best space, the best physicalities of an offering to help people do that, you know, proof of concept, the minimal viable product and, and, and develop their technologies with basically uh, programmatic aspects that kind of was sprinkled in around the edges there, right? So now we're going to the next level, which we're, we're intensifying our business building programs, and that's the addition of our accelerator program that was recently announced. So from the EDA, won a nationally competitive grant process there, you know, 600 people applied, and we were one of the few that got the, the grant, and we got the highest amount, which was a million and a half dollars, uh, you know, over three years. And what that just enables us to do, again, by showing those early proof points, like any good startup, which is Delaware Innovation itself is to some degree or a large degree, is we had to prove our credibility along the way. And as we're doing that, had a great incubator, had early programs, we could show that we were making success and then people wanted to double down on that success, right? And continue to bring in new partners to join us in that, that mission. So the, 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 the short term was that physical incubator, adding the accelerator program, as well as adding a funding program, our first fund, which enables us actually to invest and be a first believer in science uh, based companies. That's so critically important because a lot of time it's definitely that chicken and egg storyline going on where you know, someone needs to get enough work done to prove to other people why they should invest. And we're trying as a nonprofit to enable those things to get to the point of then being able to secure other people's money and to keep growing. And part of economic development is to keep a person going from A to B to C to D and onward. So, and ultimately, of course, bring that technology and science to market. Yeah. So on that point of kind of going along the investment alphabet of A to B to C to D, uh, when we were talking a few weeks ago, Prelude Therapeutics was was just going for IPO. And I, I'm curious, you know, two things. Is that the type of outcome you want to see happen from the Delaware innovation space? And then do you think that's an outcome that happens in part because of the Delaware innovation space? What What does that space bring to the mix that makes Prelude and more Preludes possible in your mind? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I mean, as I told, I mean, the, uh, the the goal and aspiration, in some ways, the aspiration is turning true quicker than I would have ever predicted, right? So it's a, it starts to signal that something's working here clearly, uh, which I believe there's many things working working well. But in terms of that um, big company that's going to last for generations and tackle big problems, I mean, Crazy Therapeutics, as an example, Chris Body, you know, his great experience, you know, of course, with an insight. Saying he wanted to return back to be an entrepreneur and do another startup. And so he went off on his own, formed a, a company. It started very small, um, was quickly starting to scale. 
he of course came with uh, built-in credibility being the key inventor of Jackify, you know, and, and major uh, product lines and insight to say, we want to invest more with you, Chris, as an entrepreneur. And, and then Chris also needed in the capabilities to grow, right? He could say, I've got the greatest idea, but, you know, can I attract the right people to join my company? Can I, you know, do I have the right location with the tools and capabilities to be successful? So we definitely partnered with Chris Heavily. He was one of my, our first clients, you know, they started with us in late 2017. And we just started, got their early investment and we're going in, in, in our space, have helped them capture fully their second tranche of investment at that point. It's about $30 million and, um, you know, move forward towards the objective. And it's a partnership in terms of you know, our ability to provide them um, their, their growth space, meaning with any company, right? You can start as small as, you know, a lab bench or part of a lab with us and eventually one person or two people, right? And, and continue to grow your company up to the point of a crazy where they have multiple labs with us now, you know, consuming a good part of it in one floor in our, in, in our complex. And it's that ability to scale and be supportive of that scaling feature as well as giving them the, the, the leverage to access to our tools and capabilities. So by giving them a home here and that they can scale into, right, they, they, they manage their cash flow. So basically they were able to keep that in check. And there was a place you can do that. that and, and that's, that's pretty critically important for enabling some companies who grow have limited amount of cash. And yes, some of them turn into appraisal, they get a little bit more cash, a lot more cash over time. But every step along the way, they've got to keep growing to that next stage or to prove that next investor or to get that current investor to double down on their company. They've got to show that growth profile, but they can't invest in the growth until, right, it's time and they're ready for it. It's not like, you know, you can sit back and say, I'm going to make a startup can make a 10 or 20 year deal with a developer saying, let's go do something together. One, they don't have the cash or two, you know, they can't see that far ahead, right, in terms of their plans. So, I mean, they might envision it, but they don't. They don't have the commitment to go that far. So us being there with our full and support of, of Prairie's growth plans uh, definitely enabled them to stay in Delaware, definitely enabled them to grow, definitely enabled them to attract the people that they attracted. I mean, a lot of people, again, if you look at Prairie, it's not like they brought in, you know, 80% of their staff from uh, California, right? They, the, most of their staff, uh, was within, I would say, a 30-mile radius of where we currently sit here at the innovation space. So the talent's here, right? So him being here, we had the physicalities, we had the location to attract the talent, uh, we had the support structure. I can't say that Chris himself had great advisors. I won't take credit at all for, for, for anything along their business planning cycle. He had a lot of great, great mentors there, but that's a, a powerful point, too, is that he's in Delaware. He's still attracted in you know, some of the best mentors, the best board members that want to get on, on, on a company early on, right? So, so uh, he had connections to investors. So it's about just enabling every entrepreneur in the ways that they need to be enabled. But all that together enabled Prelude to get where it is today quickly, right? So if, if Chris Roddy had to say in that transition early on to go relocate to Boston, that would have been a dislocation. And one could easily argue there would be a very different outcome right now. Uh, I would I would argue it'd be a slower outcome for Prelude, even given all their greatness that they have. I mean, it would have been a different group of people. They would have been dislocated for some amount of time. They would have had a hard time finding the, the, the quality and scale of the space they found with us. So, it, you know, every every company has its own magical recipe, right? And we're here to support the Delaware Innovation Space, give them the key ingredients and make it the full recipe versus having a partial recipe. 
that sounds like, I mean, I started with that very basic question of why do you need a space? And it seems like one of the values you provide is it's not a one size fits all space. You allow for scalable space uh, without having to uproot and, and move along. Uh, is that fair to say? That's very fair to say. And that's, that's our goal. And eventually then, you know, when people are graduating, we're trying to do the effective handoff to the develop, grow people up to a point of relevancy. So developers and other people that care a little bit more about them, right? Real estate folks at times, as one example, they're, they're blessed and cursed. Always, but everybody's a blessing and cursed in some, because our business people want to make smart business decisions. And they ultimately don't care whether you're Chick-fil-A or, you know, or, uh, pretty therapeutics. It depends on how much money you're going to pay them for how much space, right? So where, you know, for us with employment and growth for the state, clearly, you know, I would argue, um, you know, pretty therapeutics is critically more important than the next, you know, franchise of Chick-fil-A. And so I love Chick-fil-A, but I'm just saying in terms of scale impact, you know, I think that's where we as a community need to be very supportive of these companies that do become the next insights and gores and others that, that, that you know, the, the employment numbers that, that ultimately these type of companies provide to their employees are, uh, you know, uh, north of $100,000 for your salaries at time. So this is a good infusion of cash in people's pockets and then go spend that in the local landscape, support nonprofits and support our entire ecosystem. So Bill, how would you say you arrived at your role as the first president and CEO of this great innovation space? It, it really is an evolution. I mean, I have a passion for creating new ventures in general, you know, taking science and, and moving it into new products, into new companies, into joint ventures. And that's what I've done, did with DuPont for many years directly, mostly internal to DuPont and then working with external collaborations. So part of my drive was really always about, um, and somebody's my training as an engineer says, you know, this world is a, a complex puzzle in terms of economic development, in terms of enabling ecosystems right, to thrive and the complexities you have with developing ecosystems. To me, that's very intriguing and, and, and empowering to say, how can we make Delaware do this better? And in my role in DuPont, I saw this was happening all over the world. I, you know, we're building labs in Singapore, we're expanding labs in Shanghai, and you know, also throughout Europe and being able to collaborate with universities around the world. You know, my last role in DuPont was overseeing our open innovation and kind of external collaboration framework globally for, for DuPont and be able to see that, right? And and bring those lines and go into the Google garage and see how Google is doing stuff to you know, seeing how major universities are doing it. And like I said, already other geographies and saying, you know, at times in DuPont, I felt like I, was, I, I knew people better in Singapore than I did in Wilmington because I was just everywhere outside of Delaware all the time. I said, how can we make it work better in Delaware? And especially as we were looking at, you know, the changes with Dow DuPont, how can we do things very differently? And that's where I kind of pitched the concept saying, hey, you know, we could create and bring entrepreneurs to a special place, which I think is one of the most special places on the planet for science-based innovation, which is the experimental station and the legacy of inventions and the legacy of capabilities. They're both legacies in terms of, you know, near-term jewels that could help people create new companies. Uh, and the side story there, if you talk to Chris Body, 
Um, the interesting part about Prelude is he did the Jackify inventions for Insight here on site at the experimental station. And he sees this as a, as a creative, powerful place uh, that's inspiring for that next generation of inventions. And he's very excited and extremely that the floor actually Prelude operates on was where Chris actually was resident when he was an employee of Insight in the early days. That's just coincidental. But, you know, he just sees the power of the site in terms of its capabilities, but also just uh, the karma, the, the, you know, the inspiration. Of we also have people like Yushan Yan, who, you know, is developing new membranes for, for hydrogen fuel cell cars. And, and they'll be going like, this is where like the membranes and technology like Napion by DuPont was invented. And so like, we're going to create the next generation of X, Y, and Z. And it's just like being part of that, that 200 year storyline, right? We're, we're adding to that now, right? It's just, you know, you're, you're going to go back and then back to the wars, right? Bill Gore playing with PTFE, the great Cortex. I mean, that PTFE clearly started from a DuPont invention. Bill Gore was inspired by being part of DuPont. And he left and created those, his own company, which is again, another example of the same power of science-based innovation. So my role just evolved. So I basically pitched that idea up. You know, and, and more and more, you know, got the partnership together. And then I said, you know, it'd be really fun, right, to, to lead that organization. Initially, I thought I'd just be a board member. And, you know, in the course of time, as I was crafting, you know, the structure and the, the organization and we were having conversations, you know, around the formation, uh, you know, I, I raised my hand and said, I'd be, I'd be more than pleased to lead that organization and get it going and, and growing it to the next next step. So, so essence. You know, you pitch something like an entrepreneur, people fund it, and, you know, you get an opportunity to go lead a, a great organization like this. And I like it that I'm doing it from a nonprofit perspective. It's about how to do it for the greater good, right? To how to bring in the full capability of the U.S. government, the state government, the universities, and industry all together in a way that, that supports this. Because we all have a right and an obligation to, to, to do stuff for the greater good. And yes, you, know, you want to do everything from a charitable perspective that enables things. And, and this is one component, which is making a strong economy, you know, within the within your backyard. So, like you said, the greater good is key. How can students with policy and government career aspirations or anyone outside the STEM field specifically, how might they develop a career encouraging private and public sector collaboration? Well, I mean, of course, the, the world, I mean, uh, I, I'm a, a slight policy geek a little bit. I mean, I'm not a policy expert, kind of a policy person in training, but I work a lot with the American Association for the, for the Advancement of Science and work as part of their committee on science and engineering public policy and, and definitely collaborate with people and try to stimulate ideas around the state of Delaware policy frameworks as well. You know, I think that's a critical thing, but it's like policy and state and federal guidelines are a representation of what society values, right? So at a get-go, at a foundational enable level, that's, that's critical, right? If you want to also transition to new technologies, if a policy is not there, it may never get to market. It may. It can still, and it, it does. But I'm just saying it's, it's choices that we all make of what we care about does enable certain things to thrive and certain other things to thrive less. So I think that is part of the ongoing dialogue. And, and, and with that, with every startup company I work with, there's sectors that they fight in which are important, like, you know, how important is renewable energy? How important is healthcare, right? You know, and 
what are the policies and regulatory behaviors behind that? I want to separate, of course, the differences that you are experts on between policy and regulatory. Um, uh, they're, 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 they're similar, but they're dissimilar, of course, in terms of nature. But I'm talking more of the policy, the incentives, uh, the, the mandates, uh, the, the structure that's behind that. And within the state of Delaware, we need to learn because the world's a competitive place. And actually, from a policy perspective, I was, you know, as you look at students, students bring in learnings from all over the world, right? You know, so again, from my prior role, you know, being a student of, of talking with and studying the economic development policies of the Singapore Economic Development Board and how they, I've always been inspired and I haven't figured out how to craft this net yet, but Singapore is a smaller, as small or smaller of a place, you know, than the state of Delaware. The, 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 the power they have is their own, their own country, right? You know, but you know, how can Delaware be more like Singapore, right? And I think it's these policy people that can come to fair state. And, and, and Delaware has done that from time to time. You know, our banking regulations that brought in the credit card, but, you know, the legal structure in terms of, you know, enabling the, the, the incorporation process. And that's an example of how a small place can be bigger than a, you know, fight above it in a fighting weight, right? In terms of, Doing it, we need to do more stuff like that, you know. And we're not there yet. We don't take full advantage of that, and that's why I think we need to work collectively. And I and challenge all the policy students out there is to look at Delaware and start to simulate how can Delaware propose things that get us more like that. And, and you look at it from an entrepreneurial standpoint, you know, you can look at standard programs. I don't think we're being creative enough yet. No one is in my book. So the question is. If anybody can be the most creative in things, it, to me, it's going to be the smaller states because they can make change faster. But we also need to be creative in terms of figuring out what is the right mechanism, what is the right policy structure to put into place to incentivize, again, that policy incentivizes the public-private partnerships to happen, right, or not happen, potentially, depending on, you know, the rules of the road there. We need to figure out how to drive a better process, a better engagement process, in Delaware, between all the key policy experts, and to focus them on workshops, focus them on key tasks, so there is some traction, some progress made, more so than it's being made today. I'm not saying we're completely off the mark by any stretch. I'm just saying it's such an opportunity still on the table, and we're not fully capitalizing on it. Well, my industrial policy geek alarm is going off over here too, and you know, mentioning Singapore and all these places that kind of take a more assertive role in trying to shape that ecosystem around innovation and entrepreneurship. And I had kind of a follow-up question in mind here about one of the ways academics talk about innovation is it's as a result of this triple helix, which is, you know, industry, government, higher ed, and these have, you can picture the spirals of the DNA helix. It's this real intricate code in terms of how they interact. And I think that's what places like Singapore have done. They've kind of coded those interactions in a certain way to get, in their mind, a desirable outcome. And I guess I'm curious, you know, kind of when and where you see that those interactions working best in Delaware or elsewhere. And when, when do you see those interactions falling down? Uh, and I'll just give an example. Like we hear a lot often in political circles, we don't want government to pick winners and losers, for example. But where, where do you see the great good examples to model and the not so good examples that we want to avoid? Yeah, I mean, as you were talking, one, you know, just brought to mind, I never figured out how to bring that into the conversation of Delaware, but um, I'm trying to remember the name of the program. But in Singapore, at the National University of Singapore, 
is actually a they have a special program name for it, I wish I could remember right now, but basically what they do is they actually land offices of U.S. universities in professor time and incentivize that to actually teach graduate students, teach courses, and there is like the MIT office in Singapore at the National University of Singapore, it's a collaboration, there's Berkeley, there's, you know, so forth and so on, there, there's, and, and this is like dozens of universities in a building, right, that have, have, they're not just virtual offices. Again, they're mandated the professors will give me probably this year with with COVID, they're virtual, but again, they professors would fly over there. They would they would have students that they were advising doing research in that university. So they were bringing in the expertise of the world into Singapore through that academic, you know, lens. Well beyond again, again, if it, if, if Singapore said, I'm going to develop the best university and only do that in my country, they might have one great university, a national university. Singapore is a great university, but what they've done with that additional program is, is, is double down or triple down or 10x the, the investment with bringing in all this leverage capability, right? So I think it's that to me a great powerful model you say in terms of innovation is in some ways innovation is making it easy for smart people to come play with you and do stuff with you, right? And that's an example of an academic world how, they, how they've done that within Singapore. I mean, I think you have to be careful about in terms of government picking winners and losers. I mean, I was involved for many years in biofuels and um, technology and industrial efforts. And at one point, the U.S. government did a call for proposals that had a funding that said, we want you to go faster industry. We want you to go build these hundreds of millions of dollars plants for cellulosic ethanol. And, and in essence, what they did is they enabled certain companies to move forward and build something before they were ready. And they and they built flawed plants in the process. And with that, they've all more or less failed or, or, or filed for bankruptcy. Yes, it's partially because of the fickle policy environment that was coming and going. But at the end of the day, the government, you know, with money, encouraged people to go faster than ultimately they should have. Because the, the people in industry knew they could because they had the backstop. If I failed, I had this loan guarantee from the government so they didn't feel like they were taking the risk, right? So in some ways, you want to make certain what, no matter what program you're doing, you know, the people who are doing it have enough skin in the game to, uh, if it does fail, it should be slightly painful on those folks. So they should get out sooner rather than later. I'd say fail, failure is not always a bad thing. You know, you just don't want to go too far and too aggressive before you fail, and that then becomes the bad failure. So those are a couple of examples. I think innovation, I mean, I'm not quite sure of the exact, you know, academic, analog you were going after there, Troy, but I mean, innovation can happen in any of the pipelines. Ultimately, in my definition, innovation getting into the marketplace, it must flow through industry. Where I continue to struggle, and I've always worked at these interfaces between academia and industry, government and industry, you know, I've never been, you know, I've always been, well, of course, I was a grad student way back when, but mostly my career has been in industry. That divide is always, you know, tends not to work as well as it should. Meaning, you know, you look at, um, I, I said from a policy period, I'm not a big fan of, of, of by, by Doyle Act, you know, which says, you know, the government should pay for um, research in universities. The research then should have the full right in those and paid for by the government to license that to, to companies to commercialize. And, and, and what that does at times is a lot of universities invest in tech transfer offices, and over-negotiate, and that technology just gets abandoned or gets stranded because it, it, it and, and to me that that's a bad thing. You want it to, it's so easy to get it into industry, 
or get it into academic spinouts. And some, again, the Delaware Innovation Space now, of course, is enabling the University of Delaware to do that more easily, you know, and be helpful to them in that, that mission and objective. You look at places like MIT and Stanford and Berkeley and others, they, of course, do that, you know, like falling out of bed, as they say, right? You know, uh, and, and you've got to make it easy for your technology to leave academia and get into industry, whether it's through startups or through corporate collaborations and licensing and universities and also national labs. You can national labs, many of them, the DOE in particular, are run by contracting firms, Patel and, and others. They also then over negotiate, you know, the IP that's a national lab. So I think both within, you know, the government and within academia, you always have this valley of death for technology that is almost built by people at times in tech transfer offices over negotiating. And I think that's something, because everybody's hopeful of, you know, the famous story of Gatorade coming out, I believe it's Florida State University, you know, where there's this, this recipe and they got a good deal on the table. And of course, that's just churned up the money over the years. Well, People don't make billions of dollars from technology, you know, licensing at universities. You know, it just doesn't happen. So don't think about it. So, but everybody has these fantasy, you know, constructs in the head. So we've got to get beyond that and say, how can we work more collectively together in the ecosystem across those divides? I'll double down on that statement in terms of we have the same challenge between states and economic development, right? You know, the famous stories of Kansas City, Kansas to Kansas City, Missouri. You just have people going across that line you know, every three or four years, you know, to, to take advantage of the incentives on the other side of the line. You know, here in Delaware, we're, we're ultimately challenged because, again, you basically sneeze and you're in Maryland or New Jersey or Pennsylvania. And I think that's great and powerful. But we got to figure out a way state by state to, to, to work as a country. And this gets back to Singapore. Why can we not do that in Delaware successfully? One, we're state and not a country. But is there some way we can form that alliance across States, I think, is critical. Nobody's working on that, right? You know, yes, we can do some stuff ourselves, but working, you know, and it's starting to happen a little bit with a crisis like COVID, right? It's starting a little bit with my book, got derailed, but, you know, how we were collaborating with, you know, a lot of the states in the mid-Atlantic, you know, we have to do more things like that. Figure out, you know, and everybody gets back into, well, this taxpayer pays for this, so it must happen in this geography or die. Well, really, okay. That's good and, and everything, but, but it's, it's, it's imperfect. You know, that logic. Yeah, I think what I hear you saying, I mean, the notion of intellectual property, people seem to tend to want to build up walls around their property <laughs> once, they, once they find the patent. And, you know, you coming from an open innovation world, for example, and I think what I hear you saying the last couple of minutes here is usually those patents need to be married with some place else, some other invention to really make it to market. And we have had a lot of walls, whether they're state boundaries, institutional boundaries, company boundaries. So appreciate that response. Are there big things we should expect from the innovation space in the next six months, year, two years that are on the horizon for you? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you know, we recently announced the, the, the launch of our accelerator program, which will launch in early 2021, where that's a free program. It's a six-month cohort program of people who have a concept for a science-based startup and they need the help and support to grow that, right? You know, so back to, it could be in any of our sectors. We will be hyper-focused on science-based companies. Uh, but that's a free program, um, mentorship connections into eventually working in our laboratories, connections with the investors, you know, enabling people to start building their business to the point of the exit of that accelerator program. 
would be having a very solid proposition to pitch to investors. And, and during the course, we'll help you make those connections and get that first investment. And then as you do that, become a residential client with us to then work into the concept in our laboratories as, as the next step. So that program's launching you know, in early 2021. We'll continue to intensify our support through the first fund in our investment program to help be that first believer in, in, in science-based companies and showing them how Delaware is the best place in the world to, to do that from, you know, and um, beyond that, just a continued evolution of our companies, you know, our, our current companies continue to see them grow and thrive and, and graduate, you know, into the local landscape. So, you know, it's just that continued pipeline. So every day is a new challenge. You know, uh, you know our, our role here is not to just be stagnant with the same companies here for forever. It's a constant flow of companies in the door and out the door. Uh, out the door, hopefully in a very productive way where they, they've sold their company to someone else and, and they're now moving to the next company and coming back to the early part of our pipeline. Or, you know, they keep building that company and, and making it bigger and bigger. And eventually they land down the street like an Insight did. Uh, my people at Insight actually grew up at the experimental station as well. You know, as it was building its business here. So, so there's a there's a, a lot of things that are you know, and uh, every day is a new day. I know, I, you know, if you told me in 2019 Prelude would do its IPO a week ago Friday and and now be worth almost two billion dollars, I would have said, I hope so, but I wouldn't have believed you. You know, but you know, in some ways, you know, things change. You know, in in, in good ways. You know, as well as, as as not so good ways. So, so I think that's we hope to keep surprising the landscape on on these great examples. I mean, talking about making the making Delaware the best place in the world to do certain things like innovation, that's you know, a great place, uh, inspiring place to kind of end our conversation. Karen, I really appreciate you joining us today, and we look forward to future conversation with you and others on how Delaware can kind of be more creative and competitive in this innovation space. And I uh, just want to thank you again for joining us, Bill. Thank you both, Kara and Troy as well. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to continuing to collaborate. For more information on the Delaware innovation space, visit deinnovates.org. For more on IPA, visit ipa.udel.edu. Thanks again for tuning in to First State Insights. Reach out with any comments and be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. I hope you'll join us again soon. 